Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. And now, here is Walter Bingham. Hello and welcome to the program for February 21st, 2023, which we call in the Hebrew calendar the 30th of the month of Shvat, 5783. I am Walter Bingham. The feature today will be an interview with Nadia Matar, the co-founder with Yehudit Katzover of Sovereignty, arguably the largest right-wing grassroots movement in the country. But I begin with my response to the statement issued this week by the combined foreign ministers of France, Germany, Italy, the United Kingdom and the United States that they, quote, strongly oppose these unilateral actions that only serve to exacerbate tensions between Israel and Palestinians and undermine efforts to achieve a negotiated two-state solution, referring to our government's proposal to legalize nine existing settlements and in addition to discussions that are to take place to add a large number of housing units in existing towns and villages in Yehuda and Shomron, the so-called West Bank. They really make me laugh. Undermine the efforts of a negotiated two-state solution. It seems that some of those foreign ministers are either too young or have forgotten the relevant history. So let me remind them. Almost 24 years ago, in July 2000, Israel's Prime Minister Ehud Barak met with Palestinian Authority Chairman Yasser Arafat in Camp David at the invitation of the then US President Bill Clinton to solve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Barak presented an agreement to be implemented in stages and said he was prepared to recognize a Palestinian state, but that the issue of sovereignty over Jerusalem and the return of Palestinian refugees should be put off for one or two or three years. The then-Palestinian Prime Minister, Nabil Abogomain, said that a permanent peace deal necessitated, quote, the return of all Palestinian rights and implementing the United Nations resolutions. They included a return of all refugees, Jerusalem as the capital of Palestine, and total sovereignty. As expected, the summit ended without result. The outcome has been said to have been like the Rashomon effect named after the 1950 Japanese film describing a storytelling and writing method in which an event is given contradictory interpretations or descriptions by the individuals involved, thereby providing different perspectives and points of view of the same subject or event. Another serious Israeli attempt at resolving the conflict was made in September 2008 by the then Prime Minister Ehud Olmert and communicated to the chairman of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas. The main elements of Olmert's proposal were the following. Israel would cede almost 94% of the West Bank for the establishment of a Palestinian state. 
Israel would retain just approximately 6.4% of the West Bank. All the lands that before 1967 were buffer zones between the two populations would have been split in half. In return, there would be a land swap to the Palestinians from Israel, as it existed before 1967. According to Condoleezza Rice, the then United States Secretary of State, quote, Olmert gave Abbas cause to believe that he was willing to reduce that number to 5.8%. Sparsely populated settlements would be evacuated, but Gush Etzion, Male Adomim and Ariel would be annexed by Israel. In exchange, Israel offered to give up area around Afula Tirat III, the Lachish region, an area near Har Adar, and areas in the Judean desert and around Gaza, equaling 5.8% of Israeli territory, maintaining the contiguity of the Palestinian state and create a safe passage between the West Bank and Gaza. It would have been a tunnel fully controlled by the Palestinians, but not under Palestinian sovereignty, otherwise it would have cut the state of Israel in two. Just imagine, we would have provided a ready-made tunnel to Hamas. Jewish neighborhoods in Jerusalem would be under Jewish sovereignty. Arab neighborhoods would be under Palestinian sovereignty, so it could be the capital of a Palestinian state. No one would have sovereignty in the Holy Basin of Jerusalem, containing sites holy to Jews, Muslims and Christians, including the Mount of Olives, the city of David, and part of the Arab neighborhood of Silvan. This area would be jointly administered by five nations, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, the Palestinian state, Israel, and the United States. No right of return for Palestinian refugees. Israel would agree on a humanitarian basis to accept 1,000 refugees every year for five years, on the basis that this would be the end of the conflict and the end of claims. That reminds me of Chamberlain waving his piece of paper. An effort would also be made to establish an international fund to compensate Palestinians for their suffering. Yes, you heard right. Compensate the Palestinians for their suffering. The agreement would also include recognition of the suffering of Jews from Arab countries who were forced out by their homes after 1948. Listen carefully to the wording. Recognition, not compensation. Palestine would have a strong police force, everything needed for law enforcement, but it would have no army or air force. The Palestinian border with Jordan known as the Jordan Valley, would be patrolled by international forces, possibly from NATO. The Palestinians would not allow any foreign army to enter Palestine, and its government would not be permitted to enter into any military agreement with a country that does not recognize Israel. Israel would retain the right to defend itself beyond the borders of the Palestinian state to pursue terrorists across the border. Israel would be allowed access to airspace over Palestine 
and the Israel Defense Forces would have rights to disproportionate use of the telecommunications spectrum. Abbas did not accept the offer. His official feeble excuse was that they did not allow him to see the map. That, to me, seems unbelievable, in fact impossible, during territorial negotiations. Olmert said in a subsequent TV interview, I told him, quote, Remember my words, it will be 50 years before there will be another Israeli Prime Minister that will offer you what I'm offering you now. Don't miss this opportunity. So, dear ministers, who is blocking the two-state solution? It is not a secret that the Palestinian leadership promotes the slogan From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Well, have no illusions. It will never happen. The United States is experiencing continuing inflation. Masses of people live from paycheck to paycheck. A dozen eggs cost more than a pound of sirloin steak. Food banks can hardly cope. I would rate to deal with that as a higher U.S. government priority than to mix into internal policies of Israel. Or have you strongly protested the practice of Mahmoud Abbas to divert international aid money to pay salaries to murderers of Jews? Will you cancel your aid program if they continue that humanitarian rights abuse? Will you sign a declaration to bring the Palestinian Authority before the International Court of Justice and also enroll your fellow foreign minister to do likewise? Until you will be even-handed and abandon your double standards, you have no right to protest and our government would be right to ignore it. Isn't it remarkable that among the numerous territorial conflicts that have sprung up since the end of World War II, it is Israel and its local Arab population that has occupied most newspaper columns and TV footage and is still doing so. But more than that, UN organizations concerned with the welfare of the underprivileged the refugees and human rights abusers spent more of their time about Israel, to be precise on Israel's Arabs, than on all other urgent problems combined. While all the world's refugees are dealt with by the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Arabs who left this country or were displaced during the 1948 Israel War of Independence I would like to call it the War of Liberation, are registered to this day as refugees by a specially established organization for their care, UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, and so are all their subsequent generations that have long settled in other lands. By contrast, some 650,000 Jews who lived in Middle Eastern or North African countries and whose life was made hell following the establishment of the Jewish state and who had to leave were left without any official support. The similar number of Arab refugees who left as a result of Israel's 1948 war of liberation are now counted by UNRWA to have 
multiplied to approaching 6 million and UNRWA claim funding accordingly. I mention these matters as examples of the double standard that the international community applies. The Jewish State of Israel was officially established by vote of the United Nations based on the Balfour Declaration as a homeland for the Jewish people, a declaration which itself rested on the grounds of our millennia-long connection to this land going back to biblical times. Only yesterday, the former U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, said he believes Israel has a biblical claim on Judea and Samaria and is therefore not an occupier. There were, of course, always Arabs living here, Bedouins, and also in a few small population centers like Nablus and Bethlehem. But the bulk arrived from poor Middle Eastern and North African countries, even from the Aegean Islands, when the early Jewish immigration and the subsequent British garrison created work. Today they claim to be Palestinians with an ancient national history. That claim of the modern Arab national movement in Israel of being the Palestinian indigenous nation with exclusive rights to this land has no foundation at all. It was the figment of imagination of the ambitious Egyptian activist Yasser Arafat who exploited the long-standing Arab hate of the Jewish establishment in Eretz Israel and in 1964 formed it into a Palestinian political movement with great effect. Unfortunately, successive Israeli governments looked idly by while the now Palestinians understood how to publicize their claim to gain international recognition. Today, the genie is out of the bottle and we must be firm to assert our rights. Ever since that day in November 1947 when UN Resolution 181 called for the partition of what was then called Palestine into a Jewish and an Arab state, the opposition of the Jewish presence in our ancient homeland began officially. In Israel today, there is a very large body of opinion that is active in preventing the idea that the Arab minority is entitled to establish itself as an independent Muslim state occupying a part of Israel. It's worth mentioning that there are already 22 Muslim states in the world and so much talk of religious tolerance. Is there no justification for one Jewish state? Among the growing grassroots sector of the population that is dissatisfied with the hesitant policies of previous governments to normalize the absurd administrative situation that obtains in large parts of Israel's homeland is the sovereignty movement, co-headed by my guest today and arguably the most influential grassroots organization on the Israeli political scene today. They have a very large and ever-increasing following, particularly among the youth of Israel, our country's future. Now that Israel has a right-wing government with ministers who support the sovereign movement's agenda, they look forward to changes.
So, to find out more about their aims and successes, I am pleased to welcome the co-founder, Nadia Matar, to the Walter Bingham File Jerusalem studio. And thank you for coming all the way from your home in the wonderful city of Efrat in the Judean Hills. Let me ask you first how and when the sovereignty movement began and are you a membership organization? Walter, first of all, I want to say that it's a very big honor to be interviewed by you in your studio and see the amazing pictures of all the people you interviewed spreading the truth about the land of Israel, the people of Israel, and our right to this land. So first, I want to thank you. About your question, our organization started really under another name. In 1993, the Oslo agreements were signed, and my dear in-laws, Ruth and Michael Matar, founded the Women for Israel's Tomorrow. It was a terrible agreement that the government of Israel at the time signed with the mass murderer, Yasser Arafat, giving him weapons, building him an army, giving him parts of our homeland, and all against the promises that they had made in the elections. And the Rabin Paris government basically forced upon us this Chamberlain-like agreement. And we felt the need to show that not only those portrayed as so-called settlers, the word settler in Hebrew, Mitnachalim, says that this is our land. Of course, I'm a settler too. I settled in Jerusalem. Absolutely. But the media tried to portray to those who said no to uh, the Oslo agreements as crazy, a fanatic. And my mother-in-law, Ruth Matar, and her husband, Michael, of blessed memory, felt the need to show that also women are against it, are in favor of keeping the land of Israel. When we found out that the Oslo agreements want to shrink us back to the green line, that's when we founded Women for Israel's Tomorrow with green hats on the green line, warning the people of Israel, let us not go back to those indefensible borders and the people cannot give up on their heartland. For so many years, we were called Women in Green. Then came Gush Katif in 2005, when we realized that demonstrations, unfortunately, had not helped. We continued the movement. I took over alone and had the incredible privilege of meeting Judith Katzover, one of the pioneers of the renewed Jewish settlement in Hebron, together with Rabbi Levinger. We returned from Gush Katif to the Judean hills of Gush Etzion to see how the Arabs started the battle of Area C, and we planted, and they approved it. But in 2011, Judith said, it's not enough, the local battle on the ground. Another caravan, another tree is not going to save Judea and Samaria while the Arabs are taking over, funded by billions of dollars by the European Union, Oxfam, USAID. We have to come with a plan. The left has a plan that we oppose. What is the plan of the right wing? We keep on saying no. No to the two-state solution. No to freeing murderers. What is our yes? And that is when we've decided to raise the flag of the plan of the national camp, the application of Israeli sovereignty over Judea and Samaria, and we changed our name from Women for Israel's Tomorrow, Women in Green, to the Sovereignty Movement. Are you a membership organization? No, people telling us that they want to join our list on WhatsApp to be updated. No, people don't have to pay it and feed. Where are your headquarters? 
Nine years ago, the headquarter became Osvegaon in Gush Etzion, the place that we set up the night of the murder of the three boys, Gilad, Eyal, and Naftali. They were kidnapped, and when they were found on July 1st, 2014, before the funeral, we have to show that we're not going to cave into terror. We are going to deepen our hold onto the land of Israel, and we went up to the forest above Gush Etzion and redeemed it from illegal Arab takeover and turned it into a beautiful Zionist educational reserve. And from there, we organize our activities for the past nine years. Did successive governments not pull it down? The place already belonged officially to the boundaries of the Gush Etzion Regional Council. It was illegally taken over by the Arabs of the area who turned it into a dump, into a place of crime, of prostitution, and of drugs. And we redeemed it, and they understood, and they knew that this belonged to the Gush Etzion Regional Council, and therefore, thank God, they didn't bring us down, and we are going to develop it more and more. As the name suggests... Your purpose is to disseminate material and to educate our people as to why the absurd situation in Judea and Samaria and the Jordan Valley is unsustainable, and you've certainly succeeded in a large measure. But how do you see the timetable for this change? That is the best question, and that is why I waited with this interview for the day after what we did yesterday. For the past 10 years, we've been promoting the idea and the plan, what needs to be done. But now we need to move with this new right-wing government, a government that believes in sovereignty, in our right to this land, from vision to implement it really. And we decided that sometimes you have to do things in life in stages. You can't do everything all together. We cannot tomorrow apply sovereignty from the sea to the Jordan River, which of course is the purpose. So sometimes you have to start with phase number one. And therefore, we decided to promote the application of sovereignty over the Jordan Valley first. Why? Because first of all, there's a big consensus. We had a big event yesterday in the Jordan Valley. And Walter, what was the most moving part of it? That it was attended by people on the right and on the left. For instance, former Minister of Agriculture, Avram Katz-Oz, from the Labour Party. He spoke more right-wing than anybody else. So the first thing that is a very big plus for the application of Israeli sovereignty over the Jordan Valley is the consensus, left and right. Number two, it's 30% of Judea and Samaria. Number three, it's the eastern border. And number four, most importantly, sovereignty. The Israeli rule over the Jordan Valley will once and for all prevent the creation of a Palestinian state in the rest. So the new Israeli government is now well and truly operating, but it's apparent that the changes and the actions you expected are progressing slower than you hoped. Do you believe that Netanyahu's repeated promises about sovereignty, particularly over the Jordan Valley, were sincere, or was it once again all electioneering? We have to understand that this government is in power only for a few weeks. And it's unfair of us to expect to shift the direction of a huge boat that for over 20 years has been going in the direction of suicidal left-wing policies that within a month or two, this new government, they will be able to right away do everything we dream of. So they have not disappointed us at all. In fact, we came out with a blessing today for uh, making nine new communities kosher and 
we have to have a little bit of patience. We cannot have a government that is being attacked by the left with vicious demonstrations, the leftist minority, and also attack them on the right saying, you're not doing things fast enough. We have to have a little bit of patience. But as you said, and it was said yesterday by all previous politicians, politicians very often make promises that they can't sometimes commit. And it's up to us, the people, to pressure. And that's what we started yesterday. We believe that the prime minister wants to apply sovereignty over the Jordan Valley. We also believe that he's very much wary about the Americans, etc. And therefore, we have to give him the strength. We are, of course, a sovereign nation. But in this shrinking world of economic interdependence, we need to look over our shoulders to the international community who erroneously believe that our Arab population are a nation and therefore have a right to their own state, at least in Judea and Samaria, known as the West Bank, and that Israel illegally occupies their land. It is an opinion that is held by a majority of the United Nations, and unfortunately, while Israel has always refuted this, we have never explained the history of many of those people's relatively recent immigration. They came from poor Arab countries, and even from the Aegean Islands, as I mentioned in the introduction, to our land to find work following the establishment of agriculture by the early kibbutz movement, and of course, after the British garrison was established in 1918 and provided work. Today, they all call themselves Palestinians. So it is an indisputable fact that there is now a large so-called Palestinian population living in and on our land, causing continuous unrest. How would you solve that to the satisfaction of all sides? It's very important that you teach your listeners exactly what you just said. We have a lot of youth that we talk to, and we also teach them, because unfortunately, even in the Israeli educational system, they're not being taught what you just mentioned. And very often, when we tell the youth that the Palestinian people is an invention from the 1970s, and we tell them about John Peters and her book, and we hope that this new government with the new Minister of Education will educate the younger generation to know its history. That's all very important and very true. But you've not answered my question. How would you solve that problem to the satisfaction of all sides? That's the international community, the Arabs who are here. I would bring to the forefront all the Arabs who joined our sovereignty movement and are telling me, Nadia, we don't want a Palestinian state and have them tell the world. Uh, uh, Bassem Each from Jericho told me or as Sheikh Tamimi from Ramallah told me, or Sheikh Jabri from Hebron told us, we prefer being residents under Israeli sovereignty than citizens in an Islamo-fascist Palestinian state. Will you stop forcing upon us a Palestinian state? We don't want a Palestinian state. Those Arabs should be brought to Europe, should be brought to America together with our ministers and should explain to them that they rather live here as residents, not as citizens, because we cannot give citizenship to 1.8 million Arabs, but they're willing to be here as residents because they know they're going to have a better life and therefore sovereignty from the sea to the Jordan River will be something good for the Jews and the Arabs alike. So when Israel takes the initiative, when Israel pushes something positive that is good for Jews and Arabs, that will convince the world, the Americans, the Europeans, and they will see it with their own eyes. 
but we've already got almost two million Arabs with full Israeli citizenship. How would you deal with the demographic problem that will in due course arise? The sovereignty movement is promoting the idea of sovereignty not only uh, in theory. Sovereignty also includes bringing in two more million Jews to address the problem of demography. Today, there's a Jewish majority between the Sea and the Jordan River, but it's not a big majority. And obviously, we have to work hard to make sure So the slogan will be an overwhelming majority of 75 to 80 percent Jews and a non-Jewish minority loyal to the state of Israel. That's a tall order. How will you do that? We have to promote Aliyah. There is Aliyah, but there's no active promotion by the government. We have to bring in at least all the French Jews, 450,000 Jews from America. We can easily bring another million to two million Jews to Israel. But there's also the grandfather clause. Well, that will be changed, hopefully, with this government. And we will have a situation where only Jews will come on Aliyah and not the great-grandchildren who have no connection to Judaism. I'm talking here about what should be done to make sure that the Arabs who want to live with us will receive residency and have a better life than any Arab anywhere, and those who want to leave will help them leave. We don't have to be shy to say that Israel with Judea and Samaria, between the sea and the Jordan River, which is smaller than the state of New Jersey, is the one and only Jewish state. It's the nation state of the Jewish people. We welcome non-Jews who want to live here as long as they respect the fact that this is a Jewish state and we're not going to give them our democratic tools to overturn our Jewish state into a state of all citizens. There have been many suggestions to solve this problem, this dispute. The latest plan that's being floated is a Hashemite Palestinian state of Jordan that includes Gaza and part of the so-called West Bank with Amman as its capital. Your comment. You're talking about creating a Palestinian state that would be the end of the state of Israel. Obviously, that cannot be accepted and that will not be accepted. Thank God we already half a million Jewish living in Judea and Samaria with another 350,000 in Jerusalem. And this government, please God, will bring in many more hundreds of thousands of Jews in Judea and Samaria. And we are not going to allow the creation of a Palestinian state in our heartland. To slightly change the subject in a televised address to the nation referring to the bill before the Knesset for judicial reform, President Herzog said, and I quote, we need to stop this fiery polarization before it burns us all. We are on the verge of a constitutional and social collapse. Do you agree? Completely not. We're not on the verge of any collapse. We are on the verge of the left going wild that they have lost and they can't accept the results of the elections. We have an overwhelming majority of the right wing. 2,360,000 people voted for a right wing government, for a judicial reform, for sovereignty, for keeping the land of Israel. And only 1 million and a little more voted to the left. Unfortunately, the left cannot accept the fact that the right wing is in power because this is the first time not only that we are in power but in the past when the right was in power still the left was ruling all the different powers of strength like the media like the judiciary system but this time we're actually going to rule according to what we were voted in for and that is the big shock by the left Yariv Levine is going to make a judiciary reform that is what he was voted for that 
That is his mandate. Where was the president of Israel when we demonstrated in 2005 against the terrible, tragic decree of uprooting Jews in Gush Katif and the northern Shomron? We were hundreds of thousands in the streets. And we were talking there not about the simple reform of the judiciary. We were talking about destroying the lives of the 10,000 Jews, destroying their homes, handing it over to the Hamas. And we were crying. Did anyone on the left call for a halt, call to talks, to put a stop to it? That was okay. But now, because they are not in power, we have to stop? So we want to strengthen the hands of Yariv Levine and Simcha Rotman and tell them that they have all the power to do so. We can listen, we're willing to discuss things, but it has to pass the first hearing in the Knesset. So they know we're serious, and then we can sit down. It passed in the committee stage. But there is a very large majority in the country. In my view, the country is split in half on this subject. How can we get over this? There are people who are warning of the third era. They're reminding us that during the Second Temple period, when the Israeli state reached the age of its 70s, we're going to be 75, then started the internal problem. And now, because we have more time, we're fighting less to have a piece of bread on our table, and we have such great economy, we have the time to bicker among ourselves. And that is when the danger starts of dividing ourselves. But I hope and pray, knowing the people in this government, that they will take this into account and they will make sure, on the one hand, not to cave in and not to make too many changes, but to do it also respectfully with the other side. We shouldn't be like they were against us. So, Nadia, can we only be united when we have a common enemy? I think that yesterday in our sovereignty event in the Jordan Valley, it was so powerful to see people like so much on the left, together with people like us, who are so known to be right-wing activists, and we were united. So there are things we can be united on. I think that the feeling that there's such a division in the people is being promoted by the media. When you don't listen to the news for a day or two, and you meet people in the streets, even with those that you disagree with, there's much less of a feeling of a... Animosity. We have to be very careful in an era where there's TikTok and Instagram and Twitter. Everything is so extreme. But that is in the media. Your movement, Nadia, is growing exponentially. The time will come when you might wish to retire. Who is there to follow you? And we understood that we have to have youth. And at that exact time, we got a phone call from a group of youth we want to join the sovereignty movement and create a department of the youth. Five, six years ago, when we met those amazing youth, we took them under our wing. If and when Judith Katzover and myself will retire, those youth who call themselves the sovereignty youth movement spread all over the country. They are already our future leaders. So I am a very big optimist. But with God's help and many partners, we will succeed, and I want to use this opportunity to thank all our partners and our donors who, only thanks to you, we do what we do, everything on a voluntary base. And thank you to Arutsheva and the others and Tamar. 
As you mentioned, the sovereignty movement has developed from a group of active women, they called themselves Women in Green, into a nationwide and influential organization. You even publish a quarterly, very thick newspaper. How many staff do you employ, and most importantly, how are you funded? I am happy you mentioned a very serious and an in-depth journal that we distribute in Hebrew and in English in 200,000 copies twice a year. And we urge everybody to help us with that. Judith and I, we have a few volunteers who work with us, and we're funded by Am Israel, the people of Israel. We have no government funding. We have a website, ribonut, R-I-B-O-N-U-T, dot C-O, dot I-L. Hebrew means sovereignty. All the information is there. Click on English and you'll get the whole website in English. Nadia Mata, thank you very much and I appreciate your time. Thank you, Walter, and may you continue to do your incredible work till 150 at least. If you wish to comment on anything you heard in the program, then please write to walter at israelnewstalkradio.com where you will always get my personal reply. Or you may put a message in the appropriate place on the Walter Bingham file page on our website. And here I end for today. So, until the next time, this is Walter Bingham wishing you a very good and safe week. Please don't forget to visit your elderly neighbor to see if they're comfortable because in many parts of the world it's now very cold. Thank you. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candlelighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Howdy, this is Rita from League City, Texas, now living in Israel. And though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Arba, Israel. And why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? Because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover. Hey, this is Nicole Eko from Malmo, Sweden. It gets pretty cold here in Sweden, so I love cuddling up with a warm cup of tea while I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, everybody, this is Frank Carr from Tennessee. Me and my dog Buster really love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. <laughs> You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.
news, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.